Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan. First, the usual housekeeping. Remember, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud or whatever app you listen to the podcast on. And you can always find us on irishtimes.com. If you do want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or you can email us on the Women's Podcast at irishtimes.com. Also, if you like what we do, then please do head along to iTunes, give us a review and tell all your friends about it. Last week, the government confirmed that a referendum on the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution will take place on Friday, May 25th. And so on we march. Today we're talking about a book which is campaigning for a yes vote. The Repeal the Eighth Anthology is a collection of stories, essays, poetry and photography around the movement for reproductive rights in Ireland. It has been put together by Irish Times columnist Una Mullally and features prize-winning novelists, critically acclaimed poets, cutting-edge artists and journalists on the front line, including Irish Times social affairs correspondent Kitty Holland, writers Lisa McInerney, Anne Enright, Louise O'Neill and Kathleen Moran, as well as a host of others like comedians Tara Flynn and Ashling B, and the inimitable Nell McCafferty. Una hopes this anthology will be the definitive collection of the art inspired by the most pressing debate in contemporary Ireland and beyond. And I'm delighted to be joined in studio by her today, along with Galway poet Elaine Feeney, who has also contributed to the book. You're both very welcome to the Women's Podcast. Una, you have a lot on your plate. What were you thinking doing a book about the 8th? Well, one of the things that I wanted to do was to look at the art and literature that emerges from social movements. So when campaigns and things are ongoing, so much creativity comes out of them. But once the goal is achieved, we tend to just look at the movement in terms of its objective and that accomplishment and forget a lot of the creative and artistic expressions that came out of it. So in approaching what an anthology on Repeal the Eighth would look like. I didn't want to go into a thing that would be um, repetition of women's personal stories because that exists an awful lot and is so amazing and is driving uh, the movement for reproductive rights forward. But there are various channels for that already, like the Exile Project and In Her Shoes and Everyday Stories, um, as well as people's personal um, stories that, that, that they write about independently. And I didn't want to collate something that was quite dour in terms of polemic or arguments, academic arguments, legal arguments, technical arguments about abortion. What I wanted to do was something a bit more freewheeling um, that spoke to people around the theme of reproductive rights and uh, what it feels like to be a woman living in a state that denies them that. So I kind of gave people a bit of a blank check to to write about things that came from that place and also to take existing pieces of work that I think are inspired by those themes and that have emerged from it. So it's a collection of short stories, of poetry, of photography, of design, 
of uh, street art, of screenwriting, um, of some kind of essay writing. And it kind of goes all over the place in a way that I think works for this kind of movement, which is very wide ranging. It actually does go all over the place. And in that sense, it's actually a... It's a lovely surprise. Um, I mean, even stories that actually have a, a, a terrible depth of sadness in them are so beautiful and so beautifully written, like Sinead Gleason's, for example. Mm. Elaine, like your own poem, yeah, um, which is actually very revealing about yourself, but is also a, a long, you know, rather, um, it encompasses almost everything, but without actually leaving you wanting to stab yourself. <laughs> You might be the first to say that. Um, yeah, I try to sort of, I suppose, balance the narrative that we've been told. I'm a history teacher, so, you know, it's sort of like um, I wanted to react to the Ireland that we were told, you know, Ireland was great, the English came, um, men fought the English and then Ireland was great again. And actually, that's that's sort of the narrative of, you know, junior search history. So I really wanted to react to that. I was teaching it. I've been teaching it for about 17 years. And I just said, this is just full of men. The whole history narrative that we teach at, for students in secondary school is just full of men. So in a way, it actually came from that, not from the repeal movement, really. And also to tell the history of women, you know, women that I love, women that I don't know at all. And where are the mothers of all these people that I'm teaching about? You know, so I suppose that's where my poem came out of. And um, I just really tried to, to balance women's voices and then the actual I suppose what I like to call pale, stale male narrative. So that's the way I, I wrote the poem in the italics uh, of one voice and then in the in actually women's voices, those of my granny, myself, my mother and so on. Because the, the, the language is light, but my goodness, it packs a punch. And, and, and it is very self-revealing, Elaine. For example, you mentioned how uh, you were pregnant when you got a blood clot in 2007 and you asked about termination and what happened. Well, that's actually really difficult to go into that hole. That was just a complete saga. I was talking to my husband about it last night, you know, just saying I'm coming on the podcast and uh, how much do we want to reveal as a couple as well? And um, he was saying to me, you know, just say it out. And it was just the way it was. Yeah, I was diagnosed with a brain clot in 2007 on my second son. I was preeclamptic on my first son and my second son. And what I noticed mostly is that when you're in hospital as a pregnant woman, you're not a woman. You're just a pregnant woman. And every, all the decisions are completely different. Uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't even get someone to have a straight conversation with me. Uh, interestingly, at the time, the gynecologist that was treating me, he seemed to be the most supportive, saying this is more than preeclampsia. This woman needs to have a, a brain scan. And he basically visited me every day until because I was collapsing. And he said, you know, while I was shown early signs of preeclampsia, that it wasn't fitting with, you know, what I was collapsing and, and fainting and so on. So it took a long time. And then when we did, we got this diagnosis and then it was all very, it was just strange and terrifying, strange and terrifying. And the whole pregnancy was a bit of a disaster, even though, you know. Yeah, I love the patronising tone of the doctor who said when you asked about termination, the doctor says, said you change your mind when you're a mother. Well, I had a son at home, yes. which is the very <laughs> difficult part about it. And mm. I suppose it was a shame because I'd had my first son with a different partner. And in a way, I felt sort of ashamed to go, well, actually, in this situation, if anything does happen to me, this is this child's life changed irrevocably, you know what I mean? It's a whole different thing. Um, so I was really concerned about that. But the interesting thing is the shame, constantly the shame and, and hiding the story. And I don't know, it was very, very strange. And 
um, everybody was given different advice as well and nurses were coming in and they were given different advice and they were saying, you know, if I was you, I'd be demanding that I go to Beaumont and so on and... Yeah, yeah. I, thought I think the way that um, Elaine incorporates those themes into her poetry is so striking, you know. And when I read her collection Rise and I read that poem History Lesson, I was just immediately, this is just such an amazing piece of writing. And it was one of the first pieces I thought of when I was putting the anthology together. And what else were you thinking of? Pick out your, your, your favourite pieces there, Una. Um, it's kind of hard to do that, I suppose. I mean, there were certainly bits that I knew that I wanted in there. Emmett Kerwin's uh, Heartbreak uh, which came out of riot that this is Pop Baby production when he when he uh, writes about and performs this piece about um, a young girl becoming pregnant and, and trying to school her son in denying that kind of culture of catcalling and all that kind of stuff. Um, Mary Call's poem, Laundry, which is a really short poem that is just very beautiful and tender um, about the context of, of Magdalene Laundries in, in, in this country. It's like eight or nine lines long or something and says so much in it. Um, I knew that I wanted the likes of Alva Smith to to write a piece and um, what we actually ended up doing instead of her writing something is she just sat in my kitchen and and talked and I just transcribed it and put it into the book because that's basically how good she is at speaking. Um, And uh, there was Sarah Marie Griffin's piece, We Face This Land, which became that kind of iconic repeal project video. Um, so there were loads of those kind of elements. I also wanted um, the voice of m- migrant woman. I asked my friend Ellie Kasyombe, who's a direct provision activist, to write a piece about how she became to speak at a at a pro-choice rally. Um, and so there's loads of different aspects like that. Anne Enright wrote a phenomenal essay that just comes at the issue from an angle that I didn't even mm. think of. And she obviously has that ability to articulate things that are maybe in the corner of your mind that you didn't even know that you thought. But when you read them, um, there's such clarity to that. Nell McCafferty wrote a really interesting piece as well about her um, perspective on activism now and her own personal experience with her mother. Um, And Mark O'Halloran wrote a essentially a short film um, about a, a young woman who becomes pregnant um, Sinead Gleeson has a very touching short story that is very literal and beautiful. Uh, Ashling B, I approached thinking that she would write, you know, this kind of lighthearted, funny piece. I had never read any of her writing before. I knew that she's amazing stand up comedian, an amazing comedy writer. And she wrote this satirical essay that I just think is absolutely phenomenal about what is a woman. Um, and, and it's, it's actually hilarious. It is she hilarious. Says, she says she defines a woman as something small and 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 basically featureless and penisless. And she says <laughs> they're not to be taken seriously when speaking. And this is fair enough because they are less important and as minorities only represent 51% of the population. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's funny because a lot of people who got the proofs of the book, one of their... Uh, things that they were saying to me was, God, Ashling B could really write, you know, because I suppose we haven't really been exposed to her writing in that way. Um, so I thought that was brilliant. Tara Flynn writes a very um, powerful short story as well that's kind of told in three parts. Um, so there's there's so much in there, you know. Um, Louise O'Neill uh, uh, gave one of her columns that she'd written about going to one of the pro-choice marches. Lisa McInerney writes a phenomenal short story that's set in a classroom um, and Catelyn Moran uh, gave a piece about her own personal um, experience of abortion as well. So there's an awful lot in there. There really is. And I, and I want to emphasize once again to listeners that, that if that sounds like a chronicle of 
disaster. It's actually not. <laughs> no, there's a lot of humor. I read it in one sitting and, and I have to say I enjoyed it, <laughs> which doesn't sound quite right. Let's talk about Nell McCafferty for a minute. Yeah. Um, because her piece, which appeared in the Irish Times last week as an extract from your book, uh, really caused a lot of talk mm. and a lot of people, Una, saying, um, well, actually, she kind of represents me in the sense that she's saying we need more nuance here. We need less shouting. We need more of the conversations my mother and I used to have mm-hmm. about, which were brave conversations, but actually called a spade a spade. And in particular, I think she may have, have hit on something um, that a lot of people are worried about, which is some of the very aggressive language used by some of the younger activists. Like, for example, quote, fuck and cunt do not comprise conversation. Yeah, when Nell sent me her piece about, so it's almost in two parts in a way. It's First of all, it's about her conversations with her mother about the issue um, when she was younger and then also her experiences um, in contemporary times being at marches and seeing these very... Um, confrontational, I suppose, placards and um, a discourse that is very urgent and uh, I hate to use the word strident um, because there's a lot of issues around how we talk about the tone of the movement. But this was Nell's perspective and she was just basically saying we're not going to win this by having those kind of uh, conversations that alienate people or that are confrontational. Um, I, Mel's, Nell's piece makes me uncomfortable. You know, I don't necessarily agree with her, but I think her perspective is completely valid. And I think that that perspective needs to be represented. And I think you're right. I think she does represent a lot of people and how they feel uncomfortable. Um, and I think that that conflict between particularly younger women um, and and um, the women that are the, are the generation of their older sisters and their mothers and their grandmothers or so on, there is a tension there. Like And there is a conflict there. And it is a similar conflict, I would imagine, not to speak for Nell, but I would imagine it's a similar conflict that she experienced in the 70s with older women saying similar things about her own uh, uh, approach. And I think that's very interesting. You know, that generational uh, discourse can sometimes be very loaded with tension, but we're all coming from the same place. We are, certainly. But I suppose what some people quite apart from the crudity of the language, let's say, yeah. uh, they would be kind of worried about the strategy or the tactics. They would think mm. this is counterproductive and therefore worrying at a time when the, when the, when the gap is narrowing in the polls. Yeah, I think with, the, with social movements, there's never one strategy. There are multiple strategies. And I do think that you need uh, this, a so-called hard, harder line in there that actually gives the thing momentum. Yeah, I had this conversation with some of my university students, uh, creative writing students, and one girl in particular, you know, she said um, she doesn't want the debate to be nasty or, you know, so divisive and so on. And um, I I asked her actually for examples of where she was experiencing this and how was it upsetting her. And, you know, it has come up a good bit in the last few weeks. And she wasn't really entirely sure. And she said, well, you know, it's just it can become very, very off-putting for people, you know. And I suppose in some ways you have to open the conversation, open up to people. And with with regards to Nell's piece, I think she's possibly asking for that, maybe that middle ground that everyone keeps speaking about, the middle ground. But I also, if this is the language that they're using on placards and that, people are very angry and they are tense yeah. and they are worried. And it isn't a safe place for women, in my opinion, uh, this country at the moment with the Eighth Amendment. It's quite it's quite scary. And I think um, that's where a lot of this language is coming from as well, you know. So maybe people's ears switch off to it. 
But at the same time, I wouldn't be, I suppose, tone policing or silencing. Yeah, I also know. think it's important to feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, in the same way that I felt when I initially read Nell's piece, I just felt uncomfortable with her kind of perspective because I'm probably one of those people who shouts quite a lot. Um, I, th- I thought it was, I thought ch- it challenged me and that's why I wanted to include it. And, you know, I kind of go back to that um, that Sarah Shulman line, you know, conflict is not abuse. And we aren't entitled to, um, uh, you know, silence somebody just because they make us feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. From all sides, I'm not mm-hmm. entitled to silence somebody who says you shouldn't be shouting and somebody who tells me that I shouldn't be shouting. I'm not entitled to silence their, their opinion either. You see, I think to say you're trying to silence them maybe is overstated. Yeah, 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 I don't see anybody silencing no, anybody. No. Yeah, yeah, I think is. it's really about just a little bit of concern that that it, it <laughs> this this mythical or real Middle Ireland mm. that that requires persuasion at this stage or requires a bit of soothing. Um, I suppose that's where the likes of Nell is coming from, who was never frightened of using mm. those words yeah, in her in her own life. So I, when she says it, I would that that's why I, I think yeah. she in particular is drawing attention. Oh, I think her point is really valid, you yeah. know, and, yeah. and, I, and and I think it's a really important perspective. And I think as well that um, you know, again, it it is. I think that a lot of stuff happens outside of cont- campaign time yeah. that is not strategic, and when a campaign comes together. That's when strategy kicks in. I mean, if you look at, at what Together for Yes are doing now, the tone is extraordinarily somber mm. almost. And people are well aware, even if they're not experienced activists, even if they're just out there protesting or doing what they can, that their perspective and their stridency and their, um, you know, vocal language and, you know, like swear words and all that kind of stuff is not part of a strategy that is aimed at me- reaching people who are very, um, you know, maybe might be ambiguous or uncomfortable about the issue. And so strategy is um, multifaceted. And so I think, I mean, these are a lot of the arguments that uh, I dealt with a lot and loads of people dealt with a lot during the marriage equality campaign. Um, And these discussions about how people talk about an issue and the volume with which they talk about it are a lot of the things that I remember from the marriage equality campaign and I think that when you are being extraordinarily vocal and you're trying to push for something um, some people are uncomfortable with that language but there is other language and other approaches that are also available to them so you also need that really strong language to motivate people too. Mm, Fair enough. Um, There is a tremendous feeling of optimism in the air. I think there is and I think um, people are hugely motivated. In terms of people's perspectives on what a movement looks like I often think that, you know, we don't necessarily see the world how it is. We see it how we are. And so when we're looking at things, we're very much drawing from our own perspectives. And it's difficult to see some kind of all-encompassing movement in every facet of it. Um, You know, I see the movement as this, like, group of, like, grassroots uh, people, you know, taking up their placards and going out there and doing things for themselves. But that's my perspective. Of course, that's not what the movement entirely is. And somebody else in politics might see it as a more legislative movement, you know. Mm. So we're all coming from our own perspectives. And, you know, the thing that Catelyn Moran says about, you know, it's feminisms, not feminism. Yeah. I think everybody is at where they're at and we have to play a role that we're comfortable with and that suits us and that we can actually do instead of trying to... Um, be something else or trying to fit something into that doesn't feel authentic or true. In that context, Una, tell us about your poem, The Usses. Yeah, The Usses was a poem that I wrote last year 
I was asked to speak at the um, the gig in the Olympia um, that that Anna Cosgrave and other people were organising, and I had a poem written about repeal, etc. And it, it was the same day that the Citizens Assembly came out um, and recommending the removal of the Eighth Amendment, and so I kind of scrapped that and wrote it that day. And it's about uh, one of the most important things to me, which is about solidarity and that you get, uh, you make progress when everybody is able to come on board and things aren't exclusionary or elitist. Mm. And that I firmly believe in protest. I firmly believe in the power of the collective and in people power. And that's what that poem is about. And the way we are going to get um, to repeal the Eighth Amendment is with the us's, not with the thems or the mm. others or whatever. It's all of us together and everybody can play a part and being opposed to abortion morally or religiously or anything else like that is not incompatible with repealing the Eighth Amendment. So we have to make space for everybody and everybody has to be allowed into a movement because that's the only way that social movements excel. And again, can I just add, uh, there's a a great lightness of tone to it and it it brings in so many relatable things. I don't care where you're from. There's a line in there for you. It's impressive that you wrote it in a day. You wrote, you wrote in a day. Well, you know. Yeah, in a, probably in a... In How a, often do people write a poem in a day, Elaine? Well, actually, that's funny that you should say that because I spent about nine months writing one poem about um, abortion and choice and women um, in my collection. And History Lesson came, it was one of those ones where you're jumping up and down off the seat and you just want to say it. And um, somebody said it's a very chatty poem, but I think women chat. That's the idea. We chat, we tell our stories. And I think, you know, that it's it's that shared movement. It's the shared stories that all our stories are different, but we do talk about our stories. We don't tend to have to be so public about them. But I think this movement needs that. It needs people opening up and sharing their stories and that. But it is that idea that actually I find that when I do that kind of bouncing up and down off the keyboard, they're the poems that are more popular with people. Mm. It's the ones I agonise over for months. No one has a clue what they're about. Yeah. <laughs> At least of all me sometimes by the end of it. But um, yeah, so I just went with it and that was the way it happened. So maybe it was similar. Yeah, I think the all, of the, all of the poetry that I write is very reactive. So mm. I tend to write it on the day or week it's going to be performed. I never spend more than like an hour and a half writing a poem. Well, in the spite canon of my... will love that. You know, the canon of literature will love that. <laughs> to hear that. First draft, best draft. <laughs> in, in spite of my woeful premonitions about reading a book about repeal, I actually have been proven entirely wrong. Brilliant. I enjoy the read thoroughly. It's out today. It's got a very distinctive cover, Una, hasn't it? It it's does, yeah. I mean, it's got two covers, actually. The, first, mm. the special edition um, was a collaboration with Anna Cosgrave and the Repeal Project. So it's black cover with white repeal. And the trade edition is a white cover with kind of black text on it that is kind of zine-like, kind of uh, harks back to protest literature and stuff like that. Looks like a poster that would be saying something about Wynn's Hotel on it, probably. Okay, that <laughs> sounds confusing. <laughs> I'm familiar with the one with the black cover yeah, and the, yeah, the, the letters that. picked out. Yeah. So I'm going with that one. And your podcast is, is, is roaring away, Don't Stop Repealing. Yeah, I started a podcast with Andrea Horn of Tropical Popical and the Hunreal Issues called Don't Stop Repealing. As Andrea says, she likes to throw glitter on an issue without minimising it. Uh, so we're taking her cue of something that is motivating, mobilising, optimistic and super informative. So that runs every week. So you can go to don'tstoprepealing.com. And also one of the things that Una and Elaine have achieved here, I think, is to draw our attention to the art and literature and all those marvellous things that have come out of this very long process. 
but which has gained such momentum in recent times. And one of the things, Una, that you say, a struggle is at its toughest when breakthroughs are imminent. It's often at this point that the most crucial art emerges. Yeah. So it's mm. very important that this be recorded and kept. Yeah, social change covers. is creative change, you know, and it's important to remember the artistic expressions that have brought us to this place and have been a part of it too. Una Malali and Elaine Feeney, thank you very much for coming into the Women's Podcast. The book is out today. Woohoo! Yay! <laughs> right, well again, I recommend that book wholeheartedly to people for and against and who might be a little bit in betweeny. And that's it for today. My thanks to our guests, Una Mullally and Elaine Feeney. Just a reminder that the book is the Repeal the Eighth Anthology and it is available from today. Today's podcast was produced by Roisin Ingle and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.